We're not entirely certain that once we are three times as large in terms of size, product, scale, people, whether remote first will work entirely all the way and whether a central nervous system or central business unit is required. One of the things that we're grappling with is what does remote mean? How far do we stretch that envelope? Can we employ someone in Brazil? Is it a time zone component? Is it a language component? Is it a jurisdiction component? For what job? So what does Habitat mean? If one of us decides to go for three weeks and gets an Airbnb and says, I'm now remote, is that a vacation? Can we agree with, to that? What is the minimum baseline? So those are the things we're figuring it out, but we love having those conversations. Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspirations and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. I hope you enjoyed our last episode when we talked to Kristen Standish, founder of Raise Her. It was a powerful conversation that spanned many topics. What are the challenges faced by women in media? what it takes to become a successful salesperson, the power of building a mission-driven business, and the advantages of starting a business later in your career. Today, we shift to a very current topic, new ways to think of the office. Our guest is Mohamsian, founder of Vell, a startup that is building premium work cafes designed specifically for people who wanna go and do their work there. We talked about Mo's experiences as an investor and entrepreneur in different ventures and how his approach to leadership has evolved throughout the years. As we talked about what led into the idea of a premium work cafe, we also had a great discussion on how remote work has evolved, the possibility it opens, and some of the key factors that companies should consider in this evolving environment. So enjoy the episode, there's a lot of richness here. Mo. Welcome to the podcast. I'm very excited to have you here. And why don't we start with you introducing yourself to our listeners? Yeah. Hi, Dino. Uh, good to meet you. I'm Mohamzian, currently CEO of, of Vell, a really cool startup. I'm sure we'll talk about it. I'm an Englishman living in Florida, which is always a treat. Englishmen, well, men and women, we spend 21 days at work for a day at the beach. And I live by the beach. So a lot of my friends are upset at me, but there you go. Such is life. That's great. So tell me a little more about your life. What was your journey? How did you grow up? And what led you here? Yeah, I'm born in the 70s. When I came out of university, entrepreneurship wasn't a lingo back then, actually. It was, uh, you were kind of a businessman, businesswoman. And I fell into real estate in the late 1990s and really enjoyed it, became the market helped. And before you knew it, I, I became very good at it, partly because of luck and partly because I knew what I was doing. And then eventually I fell into F&B and I realized how much I love dealing with customer and acquiring customer and that delivering good experience is something that is there in real estate, but with real estate is often much more kind of formal structural business than some of these kind of D2Cs. Um, and then after business school, um, I, I decided to go to business school. I, I just I had a chip on my shoulder. I always thought I'm not bright enough. So I, I went to prove myself wrong. And happily, I did. I went to you know, to London Business School, and I learned a lot in my in my late thirties there. And then something called Brexit happened in my country, in the UK, 
And ideologically, I felt more part of Europe than not. And I felt there were some economic headwinds coming our way to the UK. And I had a foot in, in the US. And uh, my family and I decided to come here five, six years ago. And you know, emigrating is, is you're dealing with imperfect decisions and imperfect information is one of the toughest things you can do, actually, even in today's world. And having looked back, it's been a great decision in actual fact. Now, you've started several ventures before this one. Your career has been mostly entrepreneurial, right? It, it has. It has. And intrapreneurial. So, you know, when you work with kind of very large businesses on either real estate or private equity side of things, you get embedded into the corporate lifestyle, corporate structure, and you get exposed to that on long-term basis, two or three years at a time, even though you're more plugged in as a client or a joint venture partner, you adopt their practices. But I think inherently, I have been an entrepreneur finding value and wanting to deliver a solution. And I really love that. I'm just designed that way. Once I realize there's a solution out there, I can do something about it. I can't sleep. I'm a bit of a singularly obsessed dog with a bone. I'm sure you can relate to that. Yes, absolutely. Which was the first company that you started? I got bought into, straight after university, I got bought into a publishing company in the late 1990s, producing kind of trade publications for Eastern Europe. And at the time, the Eastern Bloc was this mysterious ex-Soviet bloc, and bringing light into it was was very interesting. It was an advertising subscription model, and that did pretty well. I managed to scale a little bit and sell to management. And then real estate was something that found me. And real estate is lots of, especially on the development side of things, is lots of two or three year transient companies that you build, you build brand for around the product, around the development, usually around its own legal entity. You, you build from scratch and you deliver product to market. And because the product is so large, you then move to another product. You build a brand around that product. And so... In, in a sense, each real estate project, depending on its, on its size, its own mini startup with its own acquisition, product development channels and pipelines, exit strategy, and then moving on. So I've, I've done 20 or 30 of those. And then on the FMB side of things, I've had 10 years experience on kind of brasseries and cafes in, in England. That's always fun because it's, it's a completely different cash flow model to, to real estate. Different strategies are involved in customer acquisition because customer is right there and check values are different. So it's interesting. And, and now I'm involved in, in a complete startup, pre-revenue startup, pre-product. We're now coming to market with product, going from ideation to opportunity to fundraise to execution scale, team building. So yeah, it's uh, thrilling stuff. So you've been a part of several entities and many of them, as you mentioned, rapid growth, high pressure startup types. I'm curious, how do you crystallize your leadership style and come into becoming the type of leader that you wanted to be? I think people normally change in seven year cycles somehow. And that leadership style when I was in my 20s was much more accidental. It was immature, ill thought out. It was much more gun ho bull in a china shop, trying to get to a destination less macro planning, slightly wet behind the ears, and a little bit of luck. And that's probably why, and then in my 30s, as your business scales and you want to keep up with it, you become more sophisticated by, by virtue of osmosis. Larger businesses, more money, better consultants, better vendors, better product, better, better design, so on and so forth. Whether you like it or not, you're learning from people around you and your game is being raised. But 
my leadership style changed when I went to business school. It taught me this idea of one of the things that I didn't have when I was younger. And I think most leaders need to have, whether whether they're micromanagers and, and leading a smaller team or they're senior management. I don't, it doesn't, or even if you're a freelancer, I think you have to have a personal leadership style at any point in any organization. Is this idea of vision, this idea of taking the periscope up and seeing like, which way am I running? Why am I running this way? And having the reason to exist, which is ultimately what defines I, you as, as a person, your personal manifesto, and is it congruent with what you're doing at work? I think that's one of the pivotal things I was able to learn at, at school again for two reasons. One, well, three reasons, actually. Really good faculty, great curriculum, really good peers around you, but also the intention to press pause <laughs> and take that on board. And perhaps I was ready for it at the age of 38, and I wasn't at 28. But now my leadership style is embedded in this idea that know when to get out of the way. I'm keen on that because any startup requires scale. We're scale aspirational. We really want to get to larger environments and so do our investors. We want to deliver great value. All those kind of keywords are there. What do you require to do that? You really need good people. And it's being able to vet, select, make sure it's part of that cultural ethos that you and your company believe in, however size the company and then be able to get out of their way enough. But at the same time, personally, I'm allergic to mediocrity. That's just one of my things in my own life. So as long as we're both trying to win that gold medal, whatever the gold medal means, and we're delivering the same level of sacrifice and commitment and running in that same direction, the rest of it is just having good people. If you have good people who are smarter, better, faster than you are, you can recognize that, you can keep yourself in check, you can often create really good campaigns. How do you define good people when you're looking for them? What qualities are you looking for in them? It has to be a fit because you can have, let's say, your cultural values of your organization is bottom line, balance sheet and revenue. Someone who is delivering really good experience to customer but is forsaking revenue and bottom line in the short term may not be great people for your organization. So I think fit is really important. And it's much easier to manage that in a small startup than it is in a large corporation because things get diluted very, very quickly. So wanting the same objectives are important. We believe you have to really enjoy what you do, but at the same time, you have to be committed to it. So that level of commitment is important to us at Valve, for instance, and the people who come on board have to exhibit that. This idea of the four-day week may be great in some environments, but if you're trying to get on the Olympic team and win a gold medal in four years' time, waking up at four o'clock in the rain and slow and sleet and having to train, that's just part and parcel of the work. So I, I would say fit, background, experience, all the other stuff, but cultural fit. Yeah, I think it's great that you're so explicit about the commitment and drive that you expect from the people who join your team, because it may not be for everybody. And certainly there's a lot of talk about life balance right now, but there are still people who want to have that type of hardcore experience, and it's great for them to know that they can have it um, in a place like Val. I want to switch a little bit, and uh, you mentioned when we were talking earlier, you have lived in three very different places, Iran, the UK, and now we're in the US. And I'm wondering, how is that exposure to so many different cultures informed the way that you work with people? I think what's taught me is that we're much more similar than we're not. And ultimately, human beings, immaterial of language, culture, creed, class, driven by similar metrics. I, I think human beings are very creative. 
aspirational, and we want the same basic tenets. Um, so as long as you can respect those, that's important. I also think there's there's a place for everyone, and just because I don't fit in somewhere doesn't mean I can't be a rising star somewhere else. And it's about curation of those skill sets. But in terms of drive and balance, just coming back to that, that also is culturally slightly different in different parts of the world. You go to Southern Europe, it's it's a completely different culture of work and attitude to work than Northern Europe. And it's also, in most parts of the Middle East, you have a one-day weekend. And having a two-day weekend is something that's completely normal in, in Western culture. So those things, those nuances are really, really interesting. But then you you learn very quickly that you're much more united than you're not, which is great. But then this idea, I like to come back to this idea of balance you mentioned. And this idea of balance, I think balance for me and for uh, people who I like to be around me is more of an aggregate curve. It's like how balanced was your life if you draw a 75 or 80 year curve? Because at some points in your life, you really have to sprint. So if you're trying to idealize this balanced day every single day, that may be great, but you may not achieve everything you want to achieve. And if you're okay with that, then that's okay too. But we may, in, in today's culture, there's this, there is a misconception that it is important to have balance all the time. And sometimes you, you can't have it if you're trying to get to a certain destination very quickly. That is very true. And, and it's also important to have the introspection to figure that out. So on that theme, I'm wondering, how do you think about success right now? I'm talking about your personal success. And how has that definition changed since you started out? I think micro success is important. You're more unsuccessful than you are successful. So you better enjoy what you're doing, even when you take it seriously. Have good people around you that can, can pat you on the back. Entrepreneurship is often a very lonely journey as teams. You are, I'm, I'm slightly allergic to the word failure, but you're often not getting to places where you want to get to fast enough and you're chasing the horizon. So celebrating key moments is really important. Knowing that you're still on the mountain, summiting, and that's partly success. You're still, you're still in the game. That's partly success. If you're chasing a destination, it may be tough going. So it's really important to really be passionate about what you do, uh, enjoy what you do, because ultimately I think good product, good creativity, innovation comes from that. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but that's certainly true because the road is so long, it makes it easier. So to some extent, success is figuring out where you want to be in career and in life, and then setting good goals that are measurable and being able to get to them even if they're on a weekly basis. At Vell, we have a monthly OKR, Objective Key Result. And we have, you know, if, you, if you're over a seven, you're affected. And for us, that's success. On a monthly basis to getting to that as a team and really kind of having a long-term view of, of life is also something that will improve you getting there. And I think that can be successful in itself. Having intention and, and the, the imagination to want that is part of success. And it changes. It, it changes all the time. For me, when I was in my 20s, success was much more material. Today, success is about value and, and getting to, to a different, different kind of measure than what it used to be. Yeah, valid measures include more than dollars or pounds. Exactly, exactly. You know, we have a really good advisory team 
around us. And sometimes just spending 14, 15 hours a month with them, that is a measure of our success because of, of having really cool people around us who want to give us tremendous value, the learning from them. So it's, it's more malleable than, than tangible. I want to get to Val, but I have one question before that, which is going back. So you mentioned at some point you pivoted to the F&B industry, and that is an industry that is fascinating because as a leader in there, you need to wrangle, command and influence a group of stakeholders, whether it's your employees, your clients, or your investors, with a tremendous amount of diversity of personality, skill set, motivation, and being able to connect with everybody in the right direction. It requires a lot of uh, skills and a lot of flexibility. What advice do you have for people who are working in environments where they have to deal with very different type of employees and stakeholders like in order to be successful in that spot? You know, today's answer is, is entirely different to yesterday's answers, metaphorically speaking. I think we live, we live in a very transient world where things are changing very quickly. And if you're not close to each other and you're entirely remote, which is not inherent in F&B because it's a different kind of business. But one of the things that I've relied on often is common sense. It is just so powerful to be able to apply broad brush versions of that in environments that are moving very, very fast. But also then specializing with key consultants that can bring in very powerful ideas about solving those bottlenecks of problems you're talking about. Communication and transparency are really important. And marginal gain is also something that's really valuable. You know, I think in, in any industry, particularly I think F&B, if you're trying to hit a home run, it's, it's really difficult. But if you're making sure that year on year, you're delivering better value to customer, um, better check value, lowering cost, scaling in that way, I think it's, it's much better to do. But today, and I know we're coming to Val, I think one of the ideas of, of remote that's missing and lots of larger corporations particularly are grappling with it is the cultural shift. How can I move the conversation in my business fast enough for it to be relevant given that how we work and where we work from and our entire social attitude to work is now different. And can that still be congruent and, and well aligned? Particularly in a remote setting, whereby the reason we both work in the same company is no longer that we're in the same building, but maybe it's it's catalyzed by the same product or the same flag. And slightly reinforce this idea of patriotism in that company, which some countries do much better than others, for instance. I think America does patriotism very, very well. It starts at a very young age and you become an aficionado. You become really in love with your country from a very, very young age. And I think Italians do that really well. They're much more romance in it, much more ideological. Some countries don't do that as well. Um, I think it's the same for some organizations. Yeah, I see that. And I also see that a little bit already reflected in Vell. I went to the website and because somebody said I should talk to you and I read and the first phrase is like, Vell is a utopian work cafe that we deserve. And uh, I'm in, I want to talk to this guy. So for our listeners, what does it mean to build a utopian work cafe that we deserve? You know, I think it's important to be ideological and aspirational in life sometimes. It's important for imagination and for creating incredible stuff to have a true north. 
that is far-reaching and is extraordinary. What do I mean by all of that? I honestly don't think the iPod and you know Apple phone and all these incredible products that have been around would have come about had we not had enormous imagination. I mean, it's impossible. To do that, You there is a certain amount of utopia and romance about it. And for you to flow and create the best version of your own product, you need to get some of life's stresses out the way. You need to leave the ordinary behind to become extraordinary and tap into something else that doesn't exist often. And you can't be in that slipstream all the time. You can't live in utopia all the time. So what we wanted to do at Vell was to create not only a product that represented that, but a brand experience that represented that. A, an aspirational true north that says, the moment you're ready to do the best work you can, then please rely on Vell to facilitate that for you. In the same way as if you are trying to go off-road, you might not take a ordinary car, a front-wheel drive car, but you you will take an extreme version of a car. The same way as if you're going, you're going to a wedding, you might take your iPhone for to rely on its camera and its its video. But if you're going on your mountain bike and you want to get really muddy and dirty, you take a GoPro. So we wanted to create an extreme version of a coffee shop because people go into coffee shops in hordes, spend billions of dollars, and just they're just not up to par. We wanted to change that experience for the average person. Yes, and speaking of this experience, a little earlier we were talking about the mission on Vell and specifically some of the aspect of how the mission relates to your customers, the people who are actually using the cafe. So I would love you to elaborate a little bit on that and share with our listeners what you were telling me earlier. Yeah, absolutely, Dino. I mean, you know, this idea of working in a coffee shop has a high degree of guilt and shame, whereby if you're working in a coffee shop somehow, it was certainly for me when I was working in coffee shops during my career, was I'm not good enough. I'm not as good as my successful cousin that works at Twitter or Google. And I always hear my uncle's voice and my, you should get a real job. Oh, yeah, these things come into play. And part of, part of why the hair on our back starts raising in, in Advel is this, we can create a counterculture that says, because you work at Vell, because we have the greatest and latest hardware, you're saying something about your choice that is, it might negate or neutralize some of those insecurities. Uh, some of them are, are tangible insecurities because the place was just not good enough. Some of them are softer psychological nuances. And to do that, I think internally, everyone has to be drinking that Kool-Aid. You have to believe that you can make a difference. Whether, whether it's me, my senior team, my employees, our investors, our advisors, and eventually communicating that to the customer. And that's how you create, you have to be your own first evangelist and early adopter. And then you can create special campaigns and prioritize around it. Well, that is fantastic. So let's talk a little about the actual experience at, at Vell. You know, the fact that you're leading from this being a workplace that also serves coffee versus just a traditional coffee shop means that from the beginning, it is built with the understanding that people are gonna work in here. So what are some of the elements that make this extreme version of the coffee shop and make up the experience? Yeah. So there are some easy to understand features. 
reservations is really important to you. Uh, respecting a space, respecting your schedule and schedule and, and says, if you want some privacy next Tuesday, it shouldn't cost you that much. If you want that, then and you can't get it at a co-working because you're not a member of a co-working or you don't have an office. You can't get that at home. At some point, you go to a coffee shop. You should be able to reserve seating. Going into a coffee shop should not just be an F&B experience. It should also be a space experience. Therefore, it ought to have the best hardware. Why can't you be sitting in a $5,000 seat that has incredible acoustic value or a $20,000 phone booth? And I mention these monetary values simply because it speaks to its quality of hardware. But then there are some softer features of what does lighting mean to you? How can I create a daylight that would improve your productivity in the hour or two hours that you're there? What does hygiene and air quality mean to you? What does temperature mean to you? What if you're left-handed? What kind of work are you doing? Are you designing or are you involved in a Zoom? Are you working from a laptop or a mobile? What do the materials impact you? What does privacy mean on your nervous system? And what does acoustic mean for your work? And what does atmosphere mean? When should you socialize and when should you be private? And what happens if you're working in a team? The very things that enormously large employers with huge budgets, with very good designers, companies, are thinking about their workplace. Why can't we do that for the average person, which is Mo in a coffee shop? And so is your initial target customer the individual freelancer or gig economy worker? Or is it more about a combination of that and then creating space for companies that may need to have like overflow or additional spaces about the traditional office? I think the pain point to some degree is agnostic. Coffee shop is a third place, categoric third place. Um, it's not your home. It's not your office. It's this other place, similar to a library. So we're never going to be substituting the office, nor are we substituting a co-working because co-working is second place, nor are we substituting your home. We're, we're a complementary product, which says, we don't think you're going to spend seven, eight hours at Vell every day. It just becomes far too expensive if you want to do that. But if you're the typical coffee shop user that spends about four to eight hours a week in a coffee shop setting, then Vell would be the, the perfect product for you during those hours. Having said that, at some point, you might want to drive through Starbucks, and that's okay too. The same way as you use your iPhone, at some point, if you're a runner, you put your athletic spikes because that's what you need. And that's Val, um, an extreme version of Val, an extreme version of a coffee shop. I think in the long run, we in larger spaces, we will start targeting larger teams and businesses for that kind of outsourced remote component. But in the short run, very much, I think that freelance culture that's working from home. That is fascinating. And obviously, I am assuming that a lot of these product design decisions are coming from your perspective of, of an understanding of how work is evolving these days and how people are working in hybrid environment. So I'm wondering, what is actually your personal view? What are some of the conversations that you're having with your investors, your advisors, as to how work is evolving and what we can expect over the next three to five years? It's fascinating. It's really, some of the stuff is, is truly radical. The winds of change are really in our sail. It's fascinating to see such a large collective wholesale shift of human behavior. I mean, switching costs are so high that some of the tongue-in-cheek statistics I can give you blow your mind. For instance, in the UK, 
you're twice more likely to get divorced, leave your husband or your wife, than you are to change your bank account. That's human switching costs. People don't like change. We don't like to do new things. And brands deal with that all the time. But today, in two years, we've had a huge catalyst. And now we're looking at it differently. To what extent it will stay or go in terms of remote work, we will see. But this idea of you know, using, again, tabloid news kind of headlines of the great resignation, it's steeped in some idea that's been around for 10 years of dissatisfaction, which means not only where we work from, but how we want to work is changing, supported by really, really good technology. And it's kind of really interesting to think about it. What could that change when virtual reality and holograms, which is not too far down the line, we're talking about a few years, really come into everyday life? What happens when Apple brings Apple glasses and and these other things start happening in these environments? So the way we see it, we think flexibility is very, very important. It can't be one size fits all. At some point, you might need Vel. At some point, home might need to become better and people are not investing fast enough or hard enough or haven't been in their home environments. We take also for granted just because you have a desk and a computer, that's a home office. So I think investing in that and and product innovation in that environment, I think is going to be, it starts with tables that you can stand on, but I think some degree of acoustics and privacy will come into the home. But also the expectation and the mandate and contract between employer and employee is changing and that's going to continue changing. And then how will real estate change because of that? We're seeing a lot of developers in the marketplace, residential developers, of for whom we want to be the ground floor retailer, realize that amenity space at point of home is very, very important for their tenants and for their leaseholders, which then means what will migration look like? Are Zoom towns real? Are secondary tertiary markets real? We see real data of, for instance, we were in Charlotte the other day looking at at least you know, 75 new people moving to Charlotte every single day. It's one of the most undervalued markets on the East, East Coast. Similar stories in, in Charleston, Savannah, and these other secondary markets are becoming much more attractive for the younger demographic. So I think technology is going to support even more, but we're going to see some voids at the same time. We talk about it at Vell. When was the last, and we're, we're huge aspirational, we, we don't claim that we can become a unicorn. We're certainly running that way. I don't think most startups are running that way to scale that fast and become that large. We often ask, um, given that we're remote first, when was the last company that became a billion dollar business on entirely remote first without a central nervous system as an office? Uh, is that possible? So some of it is unknown and lots of head scratching to come. So you, Valley is a fully remote company right now. You guys don't have an office space. That's right. We are a fully remote space supported by amazing technology touch points. And we do have a virtual office in the sky where people do show up and we have little faces that walk around, little offices, um, but no fixed abode. So just to close this conversation, the business part of the conversation, I'm going to ask you to share your experience in making a fully remote company work so far and and with really big scaling aspiration. And, you know, I think your advice applies both to people who are trying 
to go the full remote way as, as well as companies that are trying to keep a hybrid system going. What are the two or three most important things that, you know, people need to think about as they adapt to a permanent hybrid or remote system to maintain the culture, to ensure productivity, to ensure engagement? I think environment is very key. Investment is very important. Making that decision, things have changed and you need to change with it is is a really powerful step, I think. And it's much easier to do that as a startup. Admittedly, if, if we had 2 million users at the moment with major major revenue, we might find it a bit of a challenge, but we are not at the moment. So investing in that structure is important. Stipends are majorly powerful things to do. Technology stipends and things of that nature. Yeah, exactly. You know, where would you recommend people invest if they're investing in their employees for their remote? I would say embrace technology. Technology is this kind of second cloud, second world where people can rally around it. And you, you can have water cooler moments in the cloud. You create really interesting touch points without having to monitor and be invasive. Therefore, it requires a curated employee-employer relationship of being in that company and being employed by that company. It, this becomes this joint responsibility of that. And you might need to let go of some people and those people will go somewhere else and pe- my people might resign and, and employers may need to find new people. But I think... If you don't have the know-how inside, then I would definitely recommend bringing on consultants. And it's a long journey, but focus on that culture. It's very important for us as well. I'm wondering if there was a mistake that you make, you know, in setting a company remote and that you had to correct and that you would be willing to share. I don't know, maybe, you know, Vel is too young for that moment. But if you were something that, you know, a lesson that other people could learn from you. Vel is definitely too small to have those learnings and it's too young, it's it's 14 months old. But some of those errors, I, we're not entirely certain that once we are three times as large in terms of size, product, scale, people, whether remote first will work entirely all the way and whether a central nervous system or central business unit is is required to put the flag in. One of the things that we're, we're grappling with is what does remote mean? How far do we stretch that envelope? Can we employ someone in Brazil? Is it a time zone component? Is it a language component? Is it a jurisdiction component? For what job, etc. What does habitat mean? If one of us decides to go for three weeks and gets an Airbnb and says, I'm now remote, is that a vacation? Or can we agree with, to that within part of Val? What is the minimum baseline? So those are things we're still figuring it out. But we love having those conversations. It's what makes it really interesting to do that. And then what do benefits look like? What does health and wellness look like? What do the perks look like? And how do you retain on that? And how do you build this ecosystem of retention and employees if everyone is remote and if everyone is working from home? What challenges do they face? And what responsibility do I have as an employer to solve some of those challenges of maybe parenthood or moving home or whatever it may be to enable you to work better or um, and then what are the expectations can I set in terms of hours, et cetera? So yeah, lots of learning. That is fascinating. And is Vel's product just the physical cafes or do you have a, a technology suite on top of it that then can enable people to stay connected outside of the, so extend the virtual cafe? We do have that. We decided we want to be a technology is going to enhance product and support revenue rather than be the product 
itself. So we do have a technology stack that will support you in terms of reservations, some part of the being part of the membership or the subscription of Vell, but at the same time ordering FMB. And we, we do also have a subscription model where it says, if you're a power user at Vell, what does that mean for you? But technology, I think we're investing in hardware quite, quite aggressively, and we, we believe in that. You know, what do robotics mean in a coffee shop? Can one space become two, depending on who you are? We see that in micro homes and residential homes, where, whereby space can change depending on whether you're having supper or you're sleeping. Can that happen in a coffee shop? And if so, what benefit can it add to customers? That is fascinating. I want to talk about another aspect of being a CEO and probably one of the most challenging aspects of being a CEO in a company that is young and in growth mode and starting to build, which is sometimes you find yourself facing a decision which may be good in the short term, but in the long term runs the risk of undermining the culture of the company. And some of that has to do with, you know, in the beginning of the phase when you're raising money, maybe you have a money in front of you that is not the right money. And so, you know, being able to hold out for the right investors. I'm wondering if you would be willing to talk about that. That is so important. It is one of the scariest things to say no to money. Whether it's revenue, investor, it is so counterintuitive and awkward to do that. So, however, if you're able to do it in London Business School, this is not me, but London talks about smart money and dumb money. This idea that you have to have smart money on your side, that not only, and we're very lucky, the large checks we receive, the people really not only believe in our vision, are leading our vision because they believe in our product and, and the subtleties of the product. That the fact that because of places like Vell, you can fall in love with work ethic again. You can fall in love with working again because you're so passionate about it. And having those larger checks to be patient capital, patient money. And I think the greatest had it. I mean, the greatest example of that is Amazon and Bezos, where for seven or eight years, the money was patient with him to say they believe in the product. And for them, it was customer service, investing in customer service in, in the early days. So having the right money with you is, especially in the early days, it's really important. And investors and shareholders are very important for accountability. And if you're accountable for the right metrics to your investors, magic can happen. If you're accountable for the wrong metrics, you might still get there, but it might be tough. So were you ever in a situation where you actually decided to walk away from money? Yeah. Previously, I had, and I, I learned that that was the right decision to do, whether it was expansion strategies or franchising strategies where we wanted to own the intellectual property or creating a different product out of maybe the real estate that we'd purchased just to get out of it faster, for instance. You know, these kind of nuances that come into it. Uh, but today, honestly, we're, we're very blessed. The large investors we have with us believe in the vision and they're actually leading the vision for us. Well, that is great. And I think it's actually a very nice point to wrap up our business portion of the conversation and move on to the personal. So what is an interest that you have outside of work or a passion and how has that helped you or influenced the way that you work? Dude, when I was younger, I was enormously passionate about motor racing, not just as a spectator, but participating in it. It taught me a lot about being aggressive, defensive. If you pay attention to any sport, it has a lot of similes in life and it can coach you. 
but over time, I slowed that down, and I'm I'm now part of a startup. I work very hard, earn very little. There's very little little money for anything like motorsports. Maybe we'll come back in five to seven years time. But now, honestly, I kid you not, the inverse for me is it's gardening and being outdoors and just being in nature. I find that really tranquil. Things are very fast paced in in the world of startup. We work from I wake up at four in the morning. I don't stop till nine p.m. Um, so anytime I can get to just ground myself a little bit is important. And meditation has been a big role for me. And I, I rely on that as one of the backbones. And, and health and well-being are generally one of the things I think adds longevity to most people, particularly in commerce, is often overlooked. I couldn't agree more. Okay, we're now at my favorite question of the podcast. Every era has business cliches, expressions, or pieces of jargon that after a while lose their meaning because they're so overused. Is there an expression or a business cliche that drive you crazy? And what is it? This idea of failure is something I grapple with. And what does that mean? And is it okay to fail? I guess it's okay to fail. For me, it's not okay to fail. I, I don't mind making mistakes and learning from it, but I define failing slightly differently. And so make mistakes quickly and learn from it. But it's def- for us, it's definitely not okay to fail. And I like that to change slightly. And and also this idea, and I do it, I do some mentoring with actually London Business School and, and this whole idea of entrepreneurship. It's slightly overlooked that it's not that glamorous <laughs> and it's quite hard work. So making sure that the younger people that come up through the ranks really know whether it's a fit for them or not and what, what it means to be an entrepreneur, the lifestyle that it comes with, and uh, some of the joys and tribulations. Those are the things I, w- I would love the Generation Z to to get to know. You know, we look at the five people who had massive success and nobody tells you about the other 95 people who barely survived or, you know, failed. But what they fail to tell us is that the ones who, among those 95, there are a lot of who do it again because there's nothing else that they would rather do than being on the journey. And that's the reason why you should get on it, not because you expect to be the next unicorn. Exactly right. Final question, uh, I call it food for the body or food for the soul. So you can choose if you go for the body, is there a recipe or a drink or something that you know really nourishes you? Or if you go the soul route, is there a book, a movie, a piece of music, a piece of theater, a piece of art that really inspires you and that you go back to when you need that extra charge? I'll go body. I came across, and I'm, I'm not plugging them, but I, cr- I came across these products a few years ago called Noon. And they're these kind of effervescent tablets that you throw in for kind of electrolytes and hydration and, and vitamins. And I really believe in the long game. And the reason I say that, I forget the chap's name, but the British Olympic team, the cycling team, did really well in 2012. So much so that this whole generation of mammals were born. Mammal stands for middle-aged men in Lycra. And everyone started buying a bicycle because the national British team did so well in the Olympics. And the coach said, they asked him, what is the one thing that changed the four-year plan of the British Olympic team? He said, well, there's no one thing. But one of the things that was really important for us was people washing their hands. Like, what? What do you mean people washing their hands? How about all the training? He said, because we washed our hands and hygiene was important to the national Olympic team, we saved eight to 12 weeks of sickness and extra training and we didn't lose momentum 
So for, for the long game, health and well-being is really important. And the simple things, eat well, hydrate, vitamins, all that stuff is a big part of my routine. Well, this has been a great conversation. I think a lot of people are going to have a lot to think about. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast. And it was great to meet you. Thank you, Dino. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please tell a friend who may enjoy it that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure that you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts, please leave us a really good rating or a review. As usual, stick around because at the end of the credits, I'm going to share a song by one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters, Susan Cattaneo. If you want to find more about Vel or Mo, you can go to myvel.com, spelled M-Y-V-E-L. And there you will also find links to all of their social pages. Mo is on LinkedIn at linkedin.com backslash in backslash M-O-H-A-M-Z-I-A-N. You can find me online at al4ep.com with the number four. And you can also email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, you can find the show at at al4edp. And on Facebook, look for the page for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And as promised, here is a song by Susan Cattaneo. It's a song about following your intuition, and you can find it on her new album, All Is Quiet, which just came out. It's called Follow. Let her lead, let her go, she always knows the right way, let her fly, she is wise, she always finds the right way. world is on its knees
She always knows the right way 